What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Refocus Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Eric Elliott, owner and founder of Refocus Nutrition. This week, guys, we have on a pretty special guest. We have on the Sober Bodybuilder. Um, so for those of you who don't know who the Sober Bodybuilder is, he is well, he is Brad Jensen. He's the owner uh, and founder of Key Nutrition in Utah. Uh, he runs a nutrition and uh, some they sell some supplements as well, as well as uh, nutrition coaching as well. So um, I got onto Brad actually from Jason, uh, my mentor, back uh, before, a couple months ago. And we've been just kind of waiting for quite some time to record this podcast. Um, I've definitely heard Brad's story before and other people... Uh, talking about Brad, but you know when it comes to when it comes to his lifestyle um, and you know who he is, I wanted to share his story with the people that listen to this podcast. Not only that, I wanted to you know kind of talk to him about how he applies that with the clients that he works with now, because that's one of the things that we get into um, is that you know because. What help? What what makes a good nutrition coach is someone that's kind of experienced it all, has done everything, um, so that nothing comes as a quote unquote shock to them anymore, um, and they're able to handle every situation. And I think that's one thing that Brad can definitely say, given that his life, his life story up till now. So, enjoy this episode, guys, with Brad. As always, uh, reach out to me if you have any questions on your nutrition, and we can get working together on that. Not only that, um, you know, leave me a rating and review and let me know how what you think of this podcast so we can help continue to grow it with getting bigger and better guests on every single episode. Thanks so much, guys, and have a good day. And we're back, guys, with Brad Jensen. Brad Jensen is known as the uh, sober bodybuilder uh, to those who know him or follow him on Instagram. He's also the owner and founder of Key Nutrition uh, south of the border down in Utah. Uh, welcome to the show, Brad. Um, to start off with, uh, for those of you who are listening and haven't heard of Brad's story, it's, got, it's, a, long, it's a long one. It's one that's got a lot of uh, a lot of twists and turns in it. A lot of interesting things that have that have gone down. Um, without going every single rabbit hole, tell us kind of about who you are, how you got here. I guess tell me, I guess how you got into the fitness industry in general, or how you got into fitness because I know it was basically just picking up magazines as a teenager, right? Right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Eric. Man, I'm honored to be here and super excited and. Um, yeah, no, you know what? I'll uh, I'll try to give you the the summed up version, and I'll kind of first tell you how I got into uh, into you know fitness and nutrition was, you know, I um I was that I was a chubby 13, 14 year old, and I mean pretty overweight. I had yet to hit my growth spurt, hadn't hit puberty yet, and uh, also really obsessively enjoyed macaroni and cheese and. Uh, <laughs> playing Sega Genesis World Series baseball. But you know, I was I was picked on a little um mostly by my friends, but it was it was messing with me. They would um definitely make me kind of like one end of the joke and and it messed with me enough that I was feeling really insecure. So I remember I was um I was with my mother at uh at a bookstore. That's how long ago it was people still went to bookstores. Maybe they still do. I don't know. But um and Remember, I picked up a, uh, I picked up, it was like a men's fitness or, um, 
I don't remember exactly what magazine it was, but I remember I was just fascinated, dude. I picked up the magazine and I looked at the cover and I saw this jacked bodybuilder. I think it was a muscle fitness. I was like, I'm going to look like that guy one day, which made no sense at the time because I was this chubby kid who loved Nintendo. And I remember I picked it up, dude, and it was the first thing I'd ever been passionate about. And I've shared that before, but it truly was. I remember I was a very like average student and I continued to be an average student. And I just wasn't super interested. And I started reading and I remember I just was fascinated. So I went back every day. I'd take my bike to bike there. And, and I say that always because I was the guy who was not willing to do much of anything. But yet now I was riding my bike across town and going to the bookstore and I would just sit there and read magazines. It was, I was fascinated, man. I was hooked. And I started applying what they told me. The problem was is it was these very strict, uh, restrictive diets that were consisting of like tuna fish or fish and, and brown rice. And I was taking tuna fish cans and brown rice to school. And I would bring a can opener. And it was, it was bad. But I got really in shape from it. I started to see results. And then I was really hooked. You know, people ask me, like, how do you find your passion? And what's interesting is Tom Bill, you posted uh, saying about finding your, your passion. We talked about, you know, you know, see what sparks your interest. Try a bunch of things. See what sparks your interest. Then from there, if, if it sparks your interest, engage deeply with it. And then if you engage deeply and it really fascinates you, and if it goes from, you know, passion to, to um, fascination, like, then you probably found your passion. And uh, that, that was exactly what happened to me. I wasn't planning on that. And I ended up getting in really good shape. I started learning more. I started lifting. I started. And uh, by the time I was a junior, senior in high school, I was, I was a jacked guy. I was the biggest student in school, um, shredded abs, the whole works. And so I became fast. Like I was just, it was my life. I decided that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. No matter what, because it was going to be fitness. Like that's what I was going to do. So when you, as you got into fitness and, you know, you, you got into fitness and learned more about it, um, but also just, you know, learned about the nutritional protocols um, that were in magazines, how did you adapt that over time to um, not only learn more, but at the same time, start to, I guess, analyze your relationship with food? Because a lot of the times when you're reading things, you're at a pretty subjective age or a perceptive age that you can get impacted a lot by things in magazines like that and you think it's the the truth if you will um but a lot of what's in magazines is those quick fixes right that don't necessarily translate so how did you uh juggle that education but also the relationship with food as you were going through your kind of your teens and finding yourself um it's a great question yeah because it's i mean what I was doing was, I look back, Eric, and I was so much more, I was so much more dedicated then. I mean, and I say that because literally I ate egg whites every morning with like oatmeal and then I would take like protein shakes with almonds and then I'd do fish and rice three times a day. Um, I wouldn't do that today because, but, but I also, I say I'm not dedicated, I was more dedicated then. I, I just didn't know much. And it wasn't until like probably I, so I got certified as a personal trainer as a senior in high school. And I was, it's then I realized as I started talking with people who had been doing this a while, I got a job at Valley total fitness in 2003, right out of high school. And I started talking with some of the trainers who have been working there a long time. And they started showing me like bread's not the enemy. Like you can have some bread. And I was like, really you can have a piece of bread. <laughs> and, and I, and I tried having like a sandwich for lunch instead of, tuna and rice and I didn't get fatter and I it's so 
it, it evolved over time. And I really, at that point, started to engage deeply with trying to expand my arsenal because by that point, really, I'd gotten sick, like sick of eating tuna fish and rice. And it felt very restrictive. And, and honestly, man, if I'm really being honest, it's probably the last three or four years, which is 15 years after that point, that I really started being super flexible and really understanding that, that you can be with your food. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that it, it was other people and kind of bringing that information to the forefront from me, which really helped. Yeah. And I think that like you kind of hinted at it as well. You know, if you, if you just took the last three minutes of this interview and fast forwarded probably 35 minutes now, minutes from now, and we talked about the end, we might think this is a very linear approach, right? Like Brad started out, he loved fitness, got into it as a teenager. And then here he is today, you know, owning his own nutrition business is very successful, yada, yada, yada. But we missed that in between part where you kind of went off of, off the rails, like for lack of a better term. But how did, uh, how did that happen? Like explain that middle portion. Cause I know that's, I don't know if it was alcohol when you first started experimenting with, uh, with drugs, but you mentioned on Cody, uh, Cody Boomin's podcast that, you know, you had that relationship with alcohol that you didn't want to impact your physique. And then it was alcohol as well as prescription drugs and everything else too. So how did you get into that uh, in, in your teens or later teens and early adulthood? Right. No, that was actually a great way to put it. It's, it's funny. Uh, I never thought of it that way. If we just started there and it's like, yeah, and then that's what this guy did for the next uh, <laughs> 17 years. And that's, you know, where he's at today. Makes sense. But yeah, I'll try to give you more, some of like some of the cliff notes version. We can dive in deeper to whatever you want to, but um, you know, I, I feel like, so I feel like I came out of the womb. I don't know how else to explain this, but just a little bit restless and irritable and discontent. Even when I got in good shape, I remember just feeling just really like, I was full of anxiety and, and a lot of fear. Fear ran my life and uh, you know, I didn't know how to cope with that. And I look back and actually food was my first addiction. Like I didn't just kind of eat macaroni and cheese with hot dogs and cakes and candy bars. I obsessively ate them. And my mom would tell me that's enough. And I would hide the wrappers under my bed, like just not super normal behaviors. And then I flipped to the other side where I'd found, I'd found fitness and nutrition and seen the results from it. And I got super obsessive about that. I mean, literally wouldn't eat a morsel off my thing. And during that process too, um, I drank a little early on as a kid, you know, like 13, 14 years old, but really I kind of stopped that. And especially with fitness, realized what alcohol would do to me. Um, I thought it was much worse than it really is. Like I, I pictured like literally I would lose 20 pounds of muscle, but, <laughs> um, yeah, it all started, man. It was, uh, we went to a party when I was a junior in high school and I remember everyone would give me shit about bringing muscle milks in. Sorry, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, they give me shit about bringing muscle milks in and they're like, dude, don't be that dude that like everyone else is drinking and I got a muscle milk like ready to drink and. It all kind of make fun of me, but, and I remember I wanted to get fucked up. Like I wanted to experience that just like in high school, like everyone else was partying, yeah. but I didn't want to drink. And uh, my buddy said, it was a simple thing. He pulled out some, uh, some pain pills, some, some hydrocodones. And he said, Hey man, if you want to get the feeling of feeling drunk, but not having to drink the alcohol, dude, I got these. And I didn't know what they were. I kind of heard of pain pills. 
but it was almost just like, okay, let's do it. He said, you won't be hung over tomorrow morning. And I took him and I remember, man, I just loved him. Like I loved him. All of a sudden it felt okay to be in my body. Like I felt comfortable in my own skin. I was talking with girls. I was conversing. It was, it was like this liberating feeling that literally I said to myself, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. Like that feels so amazing. And I continued to chase that. I mean, to the point where, you know, by the end of a, uh, end of a senior year of high school, I was, I was making runs down to Mexico to Tijuana, which is not like a short John. It's like 12 hours. I'm stuffing my door panels full, like committing so many felonies, literally as, as an 18 year old kid, not even really thinking of it. And I'd come back and I started selling drugs. And that's really where my entrepreneurial kind of journey started. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was distributing drugs. And, um, and during that time I just, I developed an addiction and I didn't even know I had man until about six months after, uh, graduating high school, I realized I was addicted. And uh, I, I never ran out, so I never knew what withdrawals were. And uh, and I remember I felt that that one day, and it was, uh, you know, I was with a bunch of guys, and I've shared the story before, but this is really the turning point of kind of uh, the next 10 years of my life is I started, I went down to Lake Havasu for a Memorial Weekend party. And I had not ran out of my drugs in a long time because I, I had just a plethora of them. I never had to go without. We got down there and I realized I left the bag with all my stuff back in Utah. And it was, uh, I was like, dang, man, that's going to suck. And I had heard people talk about being addicted, but I didn't really, I, I was naive to think I wasn't. And the next day I woke up just brutally sick. And I was with these older guys who I, who I thought were super cool at the time. And they said, man, you're withdrawing. I said, dude, I didn't, I can't believe this. Like, I can't believe I'm actually addicted. This sucks. And I thought it would just go away and it perpetuated and got worse. And to this day, I don't wish, I don't wish opiate withdrawals on my worst enemy. I don't have any worst enemies, but if I did, I wouldn't wish them on them. Yeah. The guy pulled out. Um, he said, come here, let me talk to you. I was throwing up. I was sick. I was anxious. My body hurt. And he said, Hey man, uh, I got something to make you feel better. And he pulled out some heroin. And I remember that time thinking, no, I don't do heroin. Like heroin's gross. That's for like low bottom junkies. Like, like I come from a good family, upper to middle class, and I don't do that stuff. And man, it was like just in that blink of an eye, I was like, okay, let me see it. And uh, so I shot up heroin for the first time as a as an eighteen year old kid. And I remember, I remember to this day, he looked at me and he said, "Kid, your life will never be the same." And and I've shared that before, but. The, the little did I know the totality of that statement. It he was absolutely right. So it went on. Um, I chased that for a long time. And to sum up the, the, um, from 18 to 28 years old consisted of, uh, me, me managing that heroin habit, surprisingly managing it, you know, for a while, but just with any addiction, my experience has been, it gets worse, never better. They, no one's like all of a sudden they're like yeah like I was super hooked on heroin and it's weird all of a sudden now I can manage it and I have a family and my wife likes me even with food it's not like oh yeah I've just I've just managed my binging now you know it got worse and for a while there I maintained a job I started nutrition coaching in 2006 um, at, at, a, at a company and they didn't know and then by 2008 um, you know, it just, it got really bad. And I had already been to about three rehabs before then, because even though I could pull it off, like deep inside, like I was really struggling. So I'd reach out to my parents and 
it sent me to rehab and man, it, um, I tell you this addiction does not discriminate. It doesn't care if you're black, white, poor, rich, brown, white, like it just doesn't care. And it, and it took me, it grabbed me and I quit my, uh, quit my job before they could fire me at that coaching place and went off the rails, man. I mean, we're talking, I went, uh, I went to another rehab. And so all in all, I'd been to six rehabs, 17 bookings into the, into the county jail here locally. And before I knew it, like, man, like literally by 2009, 2010, I was, I was living in my car. I was a homeless junkie and it happened. Like it was so cunning and baffling how You still there, Brad? You still there? Yeah, I lost you there. Okay, sorry. What'd you hear? Uh, it was at. Uh, it was so baffling. It's just baffling how all of a sudden you get to a point where you look and you say, "Like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here?" And what's crazy is, is uh, not too long, I had this gratitude moment uh, a couple months back where I thought the same thing, but totally different context. Like, man, how did I yeah. get, like how, like it's in such a different light now. But at that time, you know, I just, it was baffling to me, like what it had done to me and, and the drugs took over and uh, I stopped working out. I, I, I succumbed to the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm a junkie, I'm a heroin junkie. And, uh, man, I, I, it was one of the most, I look back and it, it made every decision for me. I had lost the power of choice. And today, the one thing I'm grateful for, and I try to tell my clients is like, you have the choice. Like we have the choice today. And I felt like I didn't have a choice back then. It was making my choices for me. Cause if I didn't do it, I would be really, really sick. I started to go to all kinds of crazy levels to be able to get the drugs. And, you know, it, I'd been to rehab, I had had solutions presented to me, and I never committed to the outline they provided. And you think about it like as we work with clients, it's like we give them this outline that we're trying to like, it's, it's worked for other people and we're going to tweak it to work for you. And like, but now it's up to you to apply that. Like literally, I went to some of the nicest rehabs that my, like you could even imagine the amount of money my parents spent. And they said, here's the outline. Like, here's, the, just do this. It's worked for millions of people. And I would be like, I'm going to do it my way. Like, I'm going to kind of take some of your suggestions, but I'm going to do it my way. And then when it doesn't work, I'm going to kind of blame you that it didn't work. And that's what I did, man. It was just uh, a series of getting sober, getting some shit back, get, getting confident. And think about it within the, in the context of clients. It's the same thing. It's like they get some weight off. They start feeling good. They start seeing some aesthetic results or whatever their goal is. And then out of nowhere, seemingly, they just say, Oh, you know what? I'm going to rest on my laurels and I'm going to like, I'm okay. And then they gain the weight back, whatever situation it is. I would get some stuff back in my life. I'd get back in the gym. I'd, I'd, I'd get some muscle back on me. I'd get back some form of coaching. And then I would just destruct it out of nowhere. You know, I didn't have the solution and uh, they were trying to provide it to me and I was unwilling to look at it. So it, it continued and it got really bad and I could share a million stories, but it just by the end, parents weren't talking to me. Uh, all of 2012, 
I lived, uh, I never had a home. I was homeless, but I was very, very resourceful. Eric. I never had to sleep on the streets and I was sleeping in people's houses and, or getting hotel rooms. And I was hustling and bustling out there. I, I was sick of going to jail. So I decided that year I wasn't going to commit any blatant crimes. So I got back into selling and like, I literally thought in my head, like, this is a better idea. At least if I get caught, I'll go to jail, but I'm not robbing people. And so, um, man, I just shifted my way around out there. And, and honestly, I look back and me, when I started this business, um, I was in a lot of fear and I remember, okay, I made it out there on the streets, like running and gunning with nowhere to stay and was always resourceful and always found a way. So, you know, for that, I'm really grateful because I think it was the start of my entrepreneurial journey. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, dude, that's, that's it in a really 10-minute sh- nutshell instead of a 50-minute. Uh, by the end, dude, heroin, uh, met, I, I would do any drug that would, that would numb me from having to feel the pain of which one my life was. Any drug. Um, by the end, I was you know, doing, doing heroin and methamphetamines. And, and I say that because like, these are the, like, those are the drugs that people are like, wow, that guy's got a problem. And I thought mixing them together would actually help me somehow, like not be so tired all the time. And it was, uh, it was insanity and the people I ended up with, it was just apps and the stuff I saw to this day, I, you know, just is baffling what I saw. And yeah. So. That, yeah, that's pretty crazy. One of the a couple of the things that I wanted to, to kind of discuss and maybe one of the, one of the stories that you have, um, the idea of, of driving over the border to Mexico and getting drugs to drive back into the country is one that a lot of people would, you know, balk at or, or like a meal for the anxiety ridden person would drive them insane. So take me through that first process and then also kind of answer the question. Like, you know, you've seen a lot of things, you've done a lot of things. Are you, would you consider yourself lucky to be alive considering where you are today? Yes. I mean, the answer to the second question is 1 million percent. Like I, I, and, and today I try to get in gratitude about like, I am one of the lucky ones, I, I you know, and since getting sober, I've, I've helped, uh, tried to help a lot of guys as, uh, they call them a sponsor in AA. It's, it's basically just a mentor. And, um, and a lot of them have died and I'm 1 million percent. I, um, the amount of drugs I did and I was an IV addict. Um, I'm very, very blessed to be alive. And, the, this going down to Mexico, you know, was so interesting was the naivety of, of back then was I didn't really understand. Like I'd go down there, we'd go to the pharmacies and we'd take my door panels off my car and we'd stuff them full and then we'd screw drive them back on. So when we drive through customs, they're searching under stuff, but they're not pulling off door panels. And I remember I did it four times and we never got caught. And the first time I was scared. I like, I, I mean, I obviously knew I was doing something really bad. I didn't understand the totality of the felony I was committing, the federal felonies. <laughs> but, and so I think almost being a little naive about that helped me, but I was definitely nervous. But when it worked once, it was almost like this grandiose ego thing took over where, where it was kind of almost like I was unstoppable. I was like, all right, well, that was me. And so I continued to do it. Now knowing a little more, like, I mean, I think, you know, if, if I know what I knew to, today back then, I would probably have been a little more nervous understanding like the ramifications of what it came down. But um, yeah, man, it was, it was interesting. That's, 
became a grandiose thing and, and the ego took over. And for me, I mean, I think just ego is the enemy for everybody. You know, I've heard an acronym that says for edging God out, whatever you believe in, it's, it's just getting super, like the ego part of us is, um, is the part that, that tries to just tear us down in my opinion. So yeah, that, that's, that, that's that in a nutshell. Yeah. That's like, that's a pretty crazy story. Just like the idea of going over the border. Yeah. Like I'd be, I'm, I, as well as many people would be shitting in my pants as a, as I'm asking questions or getting asked questions going through customs for sure. Um, one of the other stories that I heard about you as well was kind of, I don't want to see your rock bottom cause like your rock bottom might be different than what I kind of perceived as, as it was. If you have a quote unquote rock bottom. Um, but was the story of, I believe what was your grandpa's funeral, right. And, and how, and how you were perceived and how you were dressed at that funeral, how everyone saw you at that funeral. Um, and then your, your subsequent, subsequent arrest with, uh, arrest from a stolen car afterwards. It wasn't your car. Right. Yeah. Let me just take you. I mean, that story I'll walk you through real quick is, you know, all of 2012, um, you know, by this point, my family had cut me off and thank God for that. You know, I don't believe I would have finally got sober had they not uh, stopped enabling me. So if you're listening to this and you know anybody with, you know, that's an addiction, the best thing you can do to start facilitating them into recovery is honestly to stop enabling all their bullshit. Like at first it's helping, but then when I'm constantly taking advantage of the help, it's enabling, but they cut me off. And uh, so I didn't really talk to them because it was causing such a rift between my mother and my father that, you know, they've been married now for geez, I think 45 years. And they were talking divorce because my dad was so upset with my mom for continuing to help me. So, um, you know, that year was really bad and, and just incomprehensible demoralization. Like that's the best way I can describe it. It was just, I had, I had succumbed that I was probably going to die a drug addict. And like, I was okay with that in a weird way. And it was November 19th, 2012. And a few days before that, I'd gotten a call from my mom, which was really odd because she wasn't talking to me and said that my grandfather had passed away. And I remember in that moment, I, I, was, I was trying to feel it, but I was so numb from all the drugs, I couldn't really feel it. And uh, she said, I really want you to go to the funeral. Um, she said, I, I know you don't have a car, so I'll come pick you up wherever you're staying. It's, it's November 19th. I need, you, I need you to be there. And I said, okay, okay. I'll be there. And when she came and picked me up, uh, you know, I was sick. I was dope sick from not having any. And I, I, you know, to this day, I made her stop and get some, made her, I got in the car and I was about to throw up and I'd make her pull over. And she said, man, she said, I can't, I can't, she was crying. She said, I can't take you up here like this. So what do you need to feel better? And I said, I, you know, we called it getting well. I said, I need to get well. I just need to get some heroin in my system because opiate withdrawals are, are really gnarly when you don't have it. And that's why it pulls you in so deep. So I made, I made my mother, this, this religious woman, stop and get at the drug dealer's house. Then just to add insult to injury, I asked her, hey, do you got 20 bucks? And she was like, you son of a bitch. That's literally what she said to me. And she gave me the money and I went in. I hopped in her back seat, man, and uh, we were driving up there. And I, you know, every time I tell the story, I get a little emotional about. It, but I was in the back seat because she goes, "Do whatever you got to do." She didn't really know what I did, and uh, I pulled out a spoon and I started cooking the heroin. 
I pulled out a needle and she watched me from her rear view mirror and Jack Terrawin. And I remember just tears, just sobbing, sobbing down her face. And I thought like, and I remember the minute it hit my bloodstream, it's crazy. Just like that is the instant gratification. I felt like a new human being. Wow. And I still felt the pain of her watching me do that. And I remember I was, I was filled with so much shame. And they say shame is the lowest vibrating frequency you can feel. Like it was so much shame. I mean, shame deep in the gut. And then we got up there and she didn't talk to me the rest of the ride. And she just cried. And uh, I thought, what a selfish son of a bitch I am. Like I am, I am literally the epitome of selfishness. And we got up there and my family, my extended family, especially hadn't seen me in a couple of years, maybe three, I was 40 or 50 pounds underweight and jet black hair, um, wasn't dressed right for a funeral. That's for sure. I remember they all just stared at me and they were all just like, I had become this big attention thing of the funeral because people are like, what's the matter with Brad? Holy crap. Like he's going to die face was sunken in and uh, once again it all became just about me and it was just this i got this feeling and i had had it when my mom called and told me that, that my grandpa died i remember got i got the feeling like maybe i need to try to get sober just one more time i had so many countless vain attempts before to get sober and it never worked and i thought maybe i'll just try one more time one more time just try one more time but then I just, the self-doubt kicked in and I just kind of brushed it off. And then that funeral, something happened. And to this day, I believe that it was divine intervention from my grandpa. Something happened and I got this gut feeling like this has to end. This has to end. Like make this stop. I got to make this stop. And I thought, well, I can go to the public detox center, but that's horrible. Everyone pisses on themselves and it smells. And, and I was like, I can't do that. My parents won't help me. Um, Cause they'd sent me to so many detoxes and rehab. They were just done. They're like, you've got to figure this out. We can't keep going through this roller coaster with you. Long story short. Um, I got dropped off that night at my home, which my home was also uh, a crackhead motel. And met some kid, we hopped in his car and uh, we're going to get drugs. And he asked me if I would drive. And long story short, I was, I was getting on the freeway, almost hit a cop because I was texting and I was merging. And the guy's lights flipped on and the kid immediately looked at me and his eyes were big. And he said, dude, this car is stolen. I don't know what, like, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta lose this guy. I'm like, I'm not going on a high speed chase. And it was that moment of clarity, that one moment of clarity that was like, this is it. All right, I'm going to jail. This is how I can stop because left to my own devices. Every time I would get so sick trying to stop, I just immediately went back because it was so gnarly. And I got pulled over and the guy came up to me and said, uh, you know, you have license or registration. I said, no, I don't have a license and this car is stolen. And, you know, it, it, it's funny now. The guy was like, well, okay, hold on. Let me go run this. And he came back and he was like, yeah, absolutely right. Hop out of the car. <laughs> and I was like, he's like, I've actually never had somebody be so blatantly honest. And I just was, there was this calm feeling I can't describe other than I just, I knew it was over and I don't know how I knew that because I tried a million times before and uh, you know, I got in the back of his cop car and he was taking me to jail and he said, you know, 
I said, man, I'm done. He goes, you seem pretty calm about going to jail on a stolen car. And I said, yeah, I just don't even care. I didn't steal the car, but I said, man, listen, I'm done using this. This was my sign. He said, yeah, you know how many times I've heard that from the back of a cop car? And I told him, you know how many times I've said that? Like a lot. <laughs> so, and, and it was true. That's when it happened. It was, a, it was a simple moment of clarity. And it was, uh, I went to jail and I detoxed and it was awful and it was horrible. And, um, I shook and I shivered and I said things like, I'm going to kill myself. So they put me up in the crazy unit with like padded room. And, but it was just, I just remember thinking this is the last time I'm going to have to do this. This is the last time I'm going to have to do it. And so, um, after 10 years, a decade of going off and on drugs and the last couple like heavily using to the point where I don't know how I didn't die. Um, I had a lot of close calls. I overdosed six times and I've been through it all, man. And it was that moment of clarity. And I remember I got released from jail after only 30 days and the charges had been dropped against me because I didn't legitimately steal the car. The guy fessed up to it. And it was the first break I'd gotten in my whole life, I felt like. So I got out and instead of going right, so to speak, I went left. Like I did something different. I took a different approach. I went a different way and I went to a, I went to a, a AA meeting that night. And that's where my journey started, man, is I committed to the process. Like, I had gone to these rehabs and they told me you have it, you know, in rehab, they're like, look around, there's 20 of you here. You know, two of you will make it, you know, the other eight will struggle off and on and 10 of you will die. What it, it, and the statistics are actually accurate, but I just was like, well, that's really that's fucked up. I'm not like <laughs> a really small percent chance. I got like a 10% chance of actually getting and staying sober. So I believed that. And this time I just chose not, I chose to believe I was one of the 10 percenters. Like I just chose to believe that, you know what? I'm going to be one of those 10 percenters. Why can't I? Why, why not? Like why not just actually fully try and commit to the process? So I committed to it. I got a sponsor. I went through these things called the 12 steps. It's basically just an outline on, on how to like, it's a, it's a manual for life on how to like find yourself. And I believe that everyone should use them, not just drug addicts, but, and I did the work, man. I put in the work and uh, I stacked up some days and six and a half years later, like I'm still sober and I haven't touched a mind altering chemical since. Yeah. I think that's one of the themes that you kind of alluded to it uh, a little bit before as well is that, you know, within nutrition as well, when you're coaching people, you know, you can go through these quick, these quick things that might last eight weeks. You know, you, you try a new challenge at the gym and, and you might lose a little bit of weight, but then you yo-yo back to where you were. Like like yourself, you know, you tried rehab a number of times and it didn't work. You just went back to who you were. So like the underlying theme that I see in you is you have to change, you know, who you are for where you want to go. So, you know, that's one thing that I think you did. But how did how did you change who you are and who was that that new you compared to that other person? Well, I mean, you know, going through the, the 12 steps basically uh, started to help me identify like all the stuff because I, what I realized is I think the biggest thing, the biggest gift that I finally understood and felt inside was that I, drugs were not my problem. They were my solution. And when I started to identify that, I could work from the framework of, okay, because every time I'd, people would say, just stop using the drugs and your life will be better. And I was like, no, fuck you. Your life will be better. Mine will suck for a while. Like, my, like mine sucks when I stop using them. That's how I felt. And 
I finally started operating from the framework of that drugs weren't the problem, they were solutions. So what was the problem? The problem was me. The problem was my inadequacies, my insecurities, my, my self-doubt, my anxiety, my fear. I was using to cover up all these feelings that I didn't quite know how to feel. And when I started realizing drugs weren't my problem, I was my problem. They were the solution. From that framework, I was able to, to walk into changing in a way that wasn't just removing something. And it's the same thing with our clients. Like they can't comply with, with, with a plan prescribed to them. I'm not because the plan didn't work. It's like they didn't work. And what are, why are they, why do they keep binging on sugar? It's not the sugar's the problem. There's something they're trying to cover up. And, you know, getting back into fitness was a big catalyst for me. And, you know, I got, I got another break at about four months sober by getting back into nutrition coaching um, at the same place I'd worked in 2008. And I remember I started helping people. And it was interesting. I, was, uh, I remember distinctly the client where I, I was working with her, I was talking with her, and she said, she said, I just saw this light come on in her. And she said, yeah, I, I just... Like, I'm so grateful for you. Like, thank you for like helping me change and like change who I am. Like, this is so much bigger than nutrition. And like, thank you. And she got a little emotional and I felt so grateful to be in that moment. And it was the first time at 28 years old that I think I had ever felt truly grateful. And that was a catalyst for me that that was the feeling I felt like I was on cloud nine. And I realized, wow, that's what gratitude is. It's just this undying appreciation of being right there in that moment, right here, right now, and feeling it. And I got the chills. I remember thinking, that's what I've been chasing this whole time. So cha changing who I was, my thoughts, my behaviors, my all the feelings and stuff I've been stuffing was not an easy process. It was, it was the 12 steps. It was a lot of therapy. It was a lot of journaling. It was a lot of writing. Um, you know, and through that process though, like I changed and I didn't have to focus on the drugs. I had to focus on fixing me. And when I did that, I realized I hadn't thought of, I remember it was like nine months sober. And I, I remember, I just thought I have not thought about using drugs in a long time. And that was a gift. I never thought I could go a day without um, obsessing about drugs. So yeah, that's amazing. Um, and one of the things that you kind of mentioned as well when you were talking, you know, about who you were from that, that period of your 18 to 27, 28, was the self-talk that you had in the way you identified yourself. Um, you talked about like, I'm a junkie, I'm a junkie. So when you, you know, you get out of that aspect and get into the nutrition coaching aspect, how do you how do you reverse that? How do you develop the self-confidence within yourself? Um, so when someone asks you, Hey Brad, can you help me with my nutrition that you don't feel like you don't have that imposter syndrome and you actually have like, cause you know, there can be, there could definitely be a lot of thoughts going through your head being like, why the fuck does this person want to ask me for help? I'm still kind of a mess or I came from all of this. Like, how do I get past that? You mean early on in my career? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. It was, it was identifying and starting to realize, and I still, I talk, I've talked about it and I, I still have it. It's this K fuck radio in my head. That's just like, you're the worst. You can't do this. You suck. Blah, 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 blah. Stay tuned for more shitty news about you. Like, <laughs> this ongoing thing in my head that I'm just like, 
And I still have it today. And I believe that every human being has it. Today, I know how to turn this down, down a little better. And early on, honest to God, a big thing for me was surrounding myself with like-minded people. I linked up with a group of guys, guys that have been sober a lot longer than me, that have built success in their life, that used to you know, be low bottom like me. And, and I, I enmeshed myself with these guys. And I remember distinctly that there was a particular instance where I had those thoughts. I had somebody who wanted to pay me a lot of money. It was the first time someone was like, well, can I just pay you like up front for six months? And I was like, well, you want, you want to pay? Like, uh, I mean, sure, of course. Yeah, you can. And it was, I started remembering like, I've been, this is like my eighth client. Like, why is this going to pay me for six months? I don't even know if I'll be around in six months. Like I still wasn't fully like, well, I'm going to stay sober the rest of my life. I was like one day at a time, one day at a time. And I think that calling and reaching out was really big for me. I remember I called and I bounced on and still I do that to this day. And today it's more, you know, I've got a business coach that, that I rely on for that. And I've got other, you know, business colleagues that I'll call and say, hey, you know, I got this going on in my head. Like, help me sort through this. And I remember calling and I'd tell these guys this and they would help me just walk through it and be like, okay. And that's when I, when I realized that there's this self-doubt. And there's this part of my head that's always going to try to like not have me succeed. It's that part of my brain that just doesn't want me to. And I believe that everyone has it. And it's learning how to turn the volume down. And through talking about it, I identified that that's not the true me. And that I have to work through that. And there was fear. And there was a lot of uh, moments where I didn't feel super confident. And they told me like, fake it till you make it, which I hate that saying, but it worked in that moment where I just kind of like faked it. I was just like, you know what? Just 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 act like it just act act like it and um i was always taught you can't think your way into right acting but you can act your way into right thinking and so i began to act as if act as if i am somebody who was confident act as if i am somebody who's going to be around six months from now and through that process i started to change and um i again going back like i would journal a lot early on and when I journaled my thoughts, the power of putting pen to paper, and I still journal today with a pen, with a notepad, not even on my phone or computer, and it's powerful. There's something that happens where I realize that's a bunch of bullshit. Like, I'm glad I got it on the paper, and I'm going to move on. So being an addict or a former addict or whatever you want, however you want to self-identify, when it comes to being sober and since being sober, you know, you've gotten you've built a really, really successful nutrition coaching company. How do you not go completely all in on that as well as your fitness, right? Because that's another thing that, you know, I didn't know you when you just became sober, but looking at you today, look, for those of you who are, are not on this call seeing Brad in person, but can see like just his Instagram, you're not a small dude, right? And I imagine when you were using after years of not working out and training, you probably lost a significant amount of muscle mass. So how do you not go completely all in, but at the same time, how do you get to where you are today where you're, you might not be ready to step on stage tomorrow, but at the same time, like you're, you have, you have a pretty respectable physique, right? That's actually a great question. And that is the, uh, that's actually been my emphasis for this year because you're right. So, you know, I had always said back in the day, I'm going to compete one day. Everything was a one day with me. One day I'm going to compete one day. So in 2014, I'd been sober at this point, um, about a year and a half, because it was June of 2014. I, I finally did, uh, prepped and did my first show. And I loved it. It was this bucket list thing that I always said I was going to do. And I actually did really well on the show. 
So I was like, sweet, let's do another one. So I did another one, I think, uh, seven or eight months after that. And through that process, the second one was, was not as fun. It was miserable. And what I realized was I was letting that, that addictive part of my brain just go. I was, it was almost like the drugs and the fact that I was, uh, you know, I, I damaged relationships. I, I, I had had a relationship with a girl and, and that ruined, uh, I ruined that through my competing because I turned into a selfish asshole. Like it just kind of felt almost eerily like the drugs. It was all that mattered. I was all that mattered when I ate, what my cardio looked like, my training routine, like don't mess with anything. I'm on prep, leave me alone. And I didn't like the person I was becoming. And so it was at that moment I realized, okay, maybe competing at least right now is not for me. I need to back away from that. And from there, I honestly, it took me probably a year, but the last three or four years, I've gotten in a good place with my fitness. And you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I, I like where I'm at today, but I, I can tell you when I was competing, I mean, I was a lot bigger and a lot leaner than I am now, but I'm just, I've gotten to finally a good place that I realized my why for the gym, because I honestly got in this weird place with the gym and I started realizing my why had to be different. My why is that I just feel so much better and I show up better for my guys. I show up better. I've got eight other coaches and I show up better for them. When I'm also working out, I get that endorphin release. I feel better. My mood seems to be a little better. So working out for me isn't just an aesthetic thing now. It's, it's much more of a stress relief and I'm kind of keeping my head in the game, so to speak. So finding the balance with that, like I had to go through the shit to find the balance. Like I feel like I have to do that with everything. <laughs> like I have to go through it super hard and then hit a little rock bottom and then realize, okay, I can't be so all in and competing is all in. That is a hundred percent. Like you are like, that's what you do. And, you know, with business, same thing, man. I opened up Key and I had just gotten married. And let me just tell you, the first year of my marriage was extremely hard. Everyone talked about the honeymoon phase. I'm like, did I miss that? Because I didn't <laughs> want to kill each other. I was never home. I spent all my time here at the office. I was addicted to work. I was addicted to making this dream. And I saw that same thing. Like, you know, like uh, Gary Vee, I don't know if you is know who he is but yeah a big influence of, of me like early on especially and i heard the hustle and grind so i'm like cool i'm gonna do that i'm gonna hustle i'm gonna hustle but almost to the expense of me and my wife you know talked about a divorce at one point and and i say that now because we're not in that place but it was uh i went all in on business and what's crazy was i went so in on business that i actually like i wasn't working out as much it went to the other side so this year has been a big year of finding some balance because I realized I perform actually better when I'm not so on the, the other side. And if I'm preaching balance to clients and I'm not living it in my own life, then I'm just an imposter syndrome. Like that imposter syndrome will kick back up. And I felt that, you know, it's, it's a great thing to have great work ethic and work hard. But I realized I was doing it at the expense of my new wife. You know, I was doing expensive even being present for my family, which I'd worked so hard to get a relationship back with my parents and love them so dearly. And I wasn't even calling or seeing them because it was 70 hours of work a week. So this year, um, this last year, I hired Jason Phillips, my business coach, and we started to identify that I need to pr promote a little more balance in my life. And so I've put in some things to do that, man. You know, I time block out stuff. I, I try to stick to boundaries today. And 
it's crazy. I thought that key nutrition would just decline when I did that, but it's actually continued to go up because I'm actually more present. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and that was one of the kind of the questions I had for you too, was that you thought like, do you think all of your experiences, I mean, good or bad, um, have made you the better coach or the, as good of a coach as you are today? Cause I think that's one of the things Jason talks about as well is that, you know, within, within inside of IN3, what makes them good is that all of them are for lack of a better word, pretty fucked up. Right. Um, like Jason went through a, a history of anorexia. Um, and, and I finally, even in my coaching aspect of things, like the things I'm best at are understanding things that I've struggled with over the years as well, whether that's relationships with food, body image, dysmorphia, all that kind of stuff. So it has those things, like if, if you didn't go through the lows that you went through, do you think that you'd be the coach you are today? No, I don't. I don't. And 100%, like my coaching is predicated, uh, built upon like the foundation, like of all the bullshit I've been through. And I think that, uh, you know, you know, key nutrition at its core was built off of, uh, you know, me, my, my sister, um, was, you know, she's my CEO and she was right by my side, helping get this opened. And she's a huge part of what we do. And there was a time where she absolutely despised me and we didn't chat for a long time. And, um, you know, it, it was built off of triumph and, and struggle and ultimately the triumph from that and, and family and, you know, my personal experience of going through what I've been through has built me into the man I am today. And I remember hearing people in meetings say, I'm a grateful, I'm a great, my name is Brad. I'm a grateful addict. And I'm like, why, like, why would you be grateful for all the shit we went through? And it's only in retrospect now, six and a half years later, I am so grateful that, that, you know, my name is Brad and I'm an addict. Like I, I'm a grateful addict. I'm a grateful alcoholic because I've been through and I know that because of that, I've seen, I've seen the bottom of the barrel and that it helps me stay. And I feel like I've got this, this, this caveat, the, this, this, I can, st I remember it's easy for me sometimes to get ungrateful, but quickly when I realize where I came from and I take a trip down memory lane, it's really hard to feel bad for myself. All my shit I struggle with today, like all my stresses are shit I used to dream about having. Literally everything I stress about is stuff I used to dream about having. Like, you know, oh my gosh, like I've got to, you know, I've got to make sure my coaches are happy and this one guy is mad and I've got to handle that situation and I get stressed about it. And then I remember, man, like you would have killed to have these problems. Like your problems before were, how am I going to get $10 so I'm not violently ill? Who do I have to rob, cheat, or steal from to get this money so I can actually just act like, a normal person for a second and then I would end up getting more high and then I would end up in weird like it was just every day waking up where am I going to stay today like that's a stressor like today worrying about like what am I going to eat for my macros or like like it's just all the shit it just immediately puts me into gratitude that I just everything I have is just a blessing it's just it's a blessing yeah, I think that's one of the things you do, like you r really do well and you kind of, you can, you can help that with clients as well as just talking about embracing your journey, like, right, like embrace everything, the ugly aspects of it as well. Um, just a couple more questions because I wanted to, to respect your time for sure. But like the last two questions I have are, are more personality style questions. I mean, we've gotten a lot of personality over the last 45, 50 minutes as, as well. But when it comes to something that, you know, as a nutrition coach, but as a recovering addict as well, 
what would you say in terms of like th- something that someone should refocus their lives on um, to improve their lives, whether that's in physical, uh, like through a physique goal, whether that's health, whether that's nutrition, whatever it happens to be to kind of d- uncover the best of them? It's a good question. Um, the first thing that came to my mind, and I just spoke on it, is gratitude. I, be- I believe that gratitude is the fuel for life. And I believe that so many people get so hung up on all the small shit that's not going right. Even my clients, when I try to tell them, like, I want you to write a gratitude list in the morning, and they think, why the fuck does that have anything to do with me complying with macros? (laughs) Everything. Because when you truly get grateful for what you do have, it's really hard to feel sorry for yourself. And you realize that, you know, everything, I believe that so many people lack gratitude. And the second thing is patience. And I don't know how, like, if that even is in the right context, but I think people lack patience. They want quick fixes. They want this. They want that. And I, and when you ask me about my story relating to my coaching. I tell them, listen, I've been there. I wanted the quick fix all the time. I wanted to feel better right in that moment. I shot dope in the back of my mom's car and felt better in two seconds. You want to talk about instant gratification? I felt like a new person. I felt I was euphoric. I went from violently ill to euphoric in two seconds. So I get the instant gratification, but everything I have in my life that I'm truly grateful for, I had to work my ass off for, and I'd be really patient and really consistent. I think patience is sorely lacked with clients. I think it's lacked in the nutrition coaching industry. I think people want this, all this shit now. And the reality is, I was like, today I sit like our business is, is, is doing great. And we have, I have amazing coaches and I, I never dreamed of it doing this well as fast as it has. But I also understand like, you know, I've been back coaching now for six and a half years and grinding day after day after day after day after day to get here. And it just didn't happen overnight. And clients, you know, if I see one more, you know, I think Cody asked me, somebody asked said, like, if clients ask me, like, if they want like a six week shred, I'm just like, what? like, no, like, what do you, why would you want to work with me for six weeks? Like, it's going to take so much longer that to build sustainable results. Yeah, it takes six weeks to establish a good line of trust within your clients, right? Amen. Amen. That's, it's, that's why I struggle with challenges or anything. And we've ran some and it brings clients in. But, you know, it's, it's where I struggle a lot with, with those kind of things because it's just, man, everything good I have in my life took a shitload. It, it took a lot of time and it took a lot of walking through hell and it took a lot of falling down and getting back up. And so... You know, that's two things there, but I think people uh, really need to remain more grateful. I think it's sorely missed, and I think the patience is completely, completely lost with so many human beings. Yeah, I, I kind of always say that too as well. Like, I mean, weight loss is the one thing you can't go on Amazon Prime and get tomorrow afternoon, um, although there's some supplements that will tell you that they could. Um, but then there's that, like, the other Tony Robbins quote that I love so much too is that, you know, people drastically – overestimate what they can accomplish in the next six weeks, but drastically underestimate what they can accomplish in the next year or two years. Right. So there's that last question I had for you was kind of a legacy question. And I always say it's kind of morbid because no one likes to think about what their funeral might look like. But if you were imagining your funeral um, and you know, you had people, you know, talking about you after the fact, um, what would you want them to say about like who Brad was and what he did when he was on earth? Dude, I love that question. And, you know, Gary V talks about life. Like, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, like, well, that's what I want my legacy to be, is what are people going to say about me at my funeral? Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, that question hits really close to home because I think that six and a half years ago, I was really close to death and I'm not sure how I didn't die. And today, the narrative would be much different. And what I would want people to say is I was a guy who, who gave more than I took. Uh, I was a guy who um, created impact in their lives and impacted them for the better. Like, literally, man, it sounds so cliche, but I'm literally just chasing impact. I believe that in impact precedes income. And I think so many people are chasing income. And that's why they never get a chance to feel the feeling of impact. And for a guy like me who's been through the bullshit, man, like I truly like making an impact on another human being's life makes me feel grateful. And when I feel grateful, it's that same high I was always looking for my whole life. So I want him to, I would want him to say I'm a, I'm a guy who always gave more than I took and, and that I was a guy who made a positive impact for the better on their lives. Yeah. And I think you're definitely doing that every day by sharing kind of your story on, on podcasts and just on your, your own channels as well. I think that's awesome. You're, Definitely an inspiration, not only for people within the fitness industry, but just in general, I think, um, for, for what someone can do from becoming an addict to all the way to building his own um, very successful company. So thanks so much for coming on, Brad. Uh, I want to give you the chance to, to, uh, to tell people where they can find you, not only on, on Instagram, but on your website as well. Thanks, man. I know, and I appreciate the opportunity to come on here. Anytime I can share a message of hope, like there is hope. If somebody's listening to this and they know Usually it's such an epidemic that somebody is somehow knows somebody in their life. It's a friend, family member that that's addicted and there is hope. Like there is like if a hopeless monkey like me can make it, like I promise you anybody can. And that sounds so cliche, but so just the opportunity to come share um, my message of recovery and hope and change. Like it's something I jump to anytime. Um, so thank you very much for that. First off, and secondly, you can find me at the uh, at the sober bodybuilder. It's the underscore sober underscore bodybuilder on Instagram, and our company page is at Key Nutrition Utah. Utah is spelled out. Our website is just keynutrition.com, and we have a podcast on all platforms, and it's the Key Nutrition Podcast. So, yeah, I definitely recommend people go and listen to this podcast because there's a lot of like, even if you're just across to listen to this, there's actually some good. Uh, CrossFit athletes you've had on there as well, um, as well as just like a, an earth of information in terms of uh, in terms of health and fitness advice, but also nutrition and stuff like that as well. So definitely check that out, folks. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.